I want to do a shout out to one of our amazing partners, Banzoogle. Now, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a stunning website for artists. Now, I have personally have used web builders for years. In fact, the 8020 Records website is maintained by yours truly. But honestly, these days, as someone who represents artists, I just want something straightforward that still looks amazing and works with everything that we use, such as Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Bands of Town, Printful, and so forth. And Banzoogle checks off all of these. Also, for those of you who have no idea how to build websites, don't worry, they make it super easy there too. You do not need to know a single line of code. In fact, after you sign up, they go step-by-step step through each part of the process to get you up and running. Plus, their pricing is practically the same as if you paid for a web host. So really, it's a no-brainer. Lastly, and most importantly, what I love about Banzoogle is the people. Every single person I've spoken to has been nothing but kind and extremely responsive and helpful. They truly care about the artists that use their platform. And honestly, don't just take my word for it. Go listen to my interview with Stacy Bedford, the CEO of the company. Banzoogle is also offering to all our listeners 15% off the first year of any subscription. Just enter the promo code 8020show or 8020show, like the numbers, on banzoogle.com. I'll also put it in the description. Built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle. You're listening to The 8020 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The 8020 Show. I am your wonderful and amazing host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Corey Rios, who's the frontman for the desert reggae and rock and roll collective, The Hourglass Cats. In this interview, we discuss how the band got formed as well as recording their very first EP. In addition, Corey shares stories on the road, everything from going out to South by Southwest, as well as playing in California. And believe me, he had so many amazing stories to share. I can't wait for you to hear them. In addition, we also discuss about securing residencies by playing cover sets. It is my absolute honor and pleasure to give you Corey Rios. Hey, Corey, how's it going, man? Doing good, man. How you doing? Doing good, thanks. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really do yeah, appreciate it. Me. Absolutely. Uh, it's crazy because I know that, you know, you, you and I have crossed paths a couple of times in the past, but then uh, you guys came and approached me about, uh, you know, needing help with the band and so forth. And it's amazing how, how much relationships change over the years. And sometimes people that are just casual colleagues that you just bump into to shows, you, you, you know, you have, you, you know, each, each other is existing, but it may take like years before you actually end up doing something together. It's very true, man. That happens a lot in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you just don't know. You don't know where people's paths are going to cross and so forth. And that's why it is so important to make sure that you're out there and, you know, just being seen, right. And just being at shows and just letting people know that you exist and you're doing things. That is very important, actually. So I've always wanted to know, um, how did you get started in music to begin with? Uh, you know, music started for me, um, you know, my, my, I grew up in a very musical, I shouldn't say musical family, but you know, my, my dad's always been, you know, playing, he used to have a closet full of CDs. <laughs> he would go trade them in at Zia and, you know, like upload them to his little, I don't even know what he had back then, but you know, we had been listening to music and I think my first show was like when I was two and I saw UB40 
but I didn't start playing. I, I remember, you know, my parents put me in a guitar class when I was in like fifth grade and I didn't really dig it that much, but uh, I was more into sports and basketball. And then, you know, high school came around and I got dunked on by Jared Bayless, who was on the Portland Trail Blazers and other basketball teams and realized that uh, basketball wasn't going to be for me. So I just kind of, you know, starting in high school is when I just would spend pretty much like all my free time just playing guitar, learning guitar. And I mean, I, I don't think I really started taking it too seriously up until like I came back from Flagstaff. And, you know, I kept saying I'd, I would see bands or reggae bands up in Flagstaff. In fact, shout out to Synergy. I remember seeing them and they were in a reggae band. I was like, I want to be in a reggae band. (laughs) (laughs) But it took a while before I was in a reggae band. Then we started doing, I started in like punk bands, you know, ska kind of grimy punk bands. Was there a particular moment in time that you knew that you wanted to take this more seriously and and more pursuing it as a profession? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, because I I was playing around with uh, my first band called uh, Celebrate Nebraska. And, you know, we were just doing, we were doing a lot of shows and, you know, we went to Las Vegas and did Double Down Saloon, which was like, you know, really cool for me, especially for my dad. That's like his favorite bar. It's like the grimiest punk bar ever. And, you know, I don't think it was, you know, when that band started to kind of disintegrate, uh, me, Brian and Carl kind of started, well, at the time it was called The Itch. (laughs) And we realized that's a terrible name. And then we rebranded as the Hourglass Cats. And, you know, it still took a few years. I don't think it was until I was about like 25 or 26 when I realized the desk job just wasn't wasn't working for me. And then, you know, I kind of decided that I was going to switch my income stream and, you know, kind of go for it. And, you know, and of course, you know, with that, it it's it's a lot of, you know, sometimes sometimes music can become a job. Oh, absolutely. Now, is. So celebrating uh, uh, Nebraska, right? Is that mm-hmm. was, was that your first band? Was, was that something you created on your own, or did you join that band that that already existed? Um, you know, so it started with a Craigslist ad. Me and a me and this guy who he said he was a DJ, but really he was just kind of a rapper. And I don't even remember the name of that band, but um, you know, we had we sent out another uh, Craigslist ad looking for a drummer. And my friend Travis, well, eventually friend Travis showed up and he brought Carl with him randomly. He was like, oh, yeah, I forgot my sunglasses. So he's coming with me or something like that. And uh, we ended up, you know, Travis is like, well, actually, I play guitar and I sing. And he's like, Carl knows how to play drums. And, you know, Joey was the name of the singer. And at this point, I wasn't really a singer. I was more just lead guitar and guitar. And and yeah, anyways, long story short, we kicked out that singer <laughs> and started celebrating Nebraska. And it was, yeah, it was, we pretty, I mean, you know, started it from the ground up and we did pretty good for a, a bit there. I mean, we were doing like shows with Authority Zero at Marquee a lot. And I think we did something with Floggy Molly or something. We did used to play with like Tribal Seeds, Fortunate Youth. I mean, we, we that was a time when a lot of these bands were, you know, besides Authority Zero and Floggy Molly, where they were like coming up. So It'd be shows where like, you know, a hundred of our, we'd bring a hundred people to Martini Ranch and then they'd clear out and there'd be like 10 people for tribal seeds. And now tribal seeds is like <laughs> playing the stadiums. And it's just, yeah. So it was from the ground up and we did that for about two or three years. Wow. In fact, uh, one of our songs by La Panami, 
that was like we we had started playing that with celebrate nebraska so what then what turned the tide essentially to form the hourglass cats instead or the etch if you will as as the original name what made you (laughs) what what was the decision to make so to essentially move on to a different project you know i think a lot of it was me getting confident about singing you know because i was mainly doing backup vocals and then had started writing my own songs and you know my songs were not as like you know like the guitar songs i would write were more like punk and that kind of vibe but then you know i started writing songs like by la part of me and more like reggae vibed and you know don't get me wrong like celebrate nebraska shows were fun but they were like it was like guttery punk like you know my lead singer was crazy he'd like jump off everything he'd spit up in the air and catch it in his mouth like pour beer on the crowd like throw he, it was wild and you know it was cool and there was always like a pit and you know we'd always like crowd surf and do weird stuff but I, I started realizing you know a lot more people were like you should just sing more and you know I kind of had realized that like all right you know I kind of want to kind of want to start writing my own songs instead of doing this branding and you know I just told them I was like yeah you know I'm sorry man like I gotta go gotta go spread my wings over here I mean you know there'd be like 150 dudes at a show and I was like I kind of want to start playing music that you know my mom would like or my girlfriend will like more (laughs) at the time you know just well you know just something besides punk (laughs) yeah not to say that we don't you know I I'd still punk like is what you know I started on and what I still I love the attitude and I love the vibe and I try and apply that to everything that the hourglass cats does but maybe just not the actual sound was there um a particular lesson that you took with you from being as a member of celebrate nebraska then moving it onto the hourglass flats cats yeah i mean you know travis was an amazing i mean he he was a great musician he could play everything so like one of the things we would do is we'd switch off we, like during a song we would all switch to the right <laughs> like so we'd all do like a roto of drums bass guitar and then singing and stuff i mean a lot of what i learned from that band is like performance you know because it was it was strictly a performance band i mean there's still some things that we do with Dallas cats that like you know i learned with that band and then also just you know he was amazing he, he was awesome i mean this guy would sell like 150 tickets to a marquee show at like 25 bucks a pop you know by himself wow you know, that's impressive of, yeah so for everyone listening if if you're not from phoenix uh marquee is about a 2000 seat uh 2000 person venue right it's like usually around yeah. two to three thousand so it's a very large venue to sell so even to sell 150 tickets to to something like that is really impressive yeah especially when they're like 25 bucks a pop and yeah absolutely yeah he was really good at like you know the administrative stuff and organizing little mini runs and you know throwing cool shows and just all that stuff so i learned a lot from him from you know performance and just administrative and then you know, how to hustle tickets and how to, you know, book shows and whatnot. Cause I, I had no experience in that at all. Right. Absolutely. So now that you formed the hourglass cats, you were looking into recording 
your obviously your first DP, which was 432, and that was debuted in 2014. Was that your first time in the recording studio, or were you have you been in the recording studio before that? Uh, we, you know, with uh, Celebrate, we we had been to like Crass, and we had you know like some some songs come out, and but it wasn't like a legit studio. Um, you know, 432. I'm not sure if you would 100% call it like a legit legit studio, but it was a uh, it was awesome for me because it was literally, it was in North Phoenix and it's called Cosmic Soup Recording. Mm-hmm. I know the, about them. Remember yeah. that name? Mm-hmm. Remember? So I live like literally across, it was like on Cape Creek. So for me, it was awesome because I could literally just drive across the street because I was over at Cape Creek at that time. But yeah, I mean, that may have been the closest thing. And we had um, our homie uh, James, James Trevor, actually, uh, from, he used to play bass in Urban Life way back in the day. I mean, this must have been like, eight or so years ago and it was uh it was definitely an interesting experience you know like I remember halfway through it our bass player Brian like we couldn't get him to come in to (laughs) to record his bass and I sent Chaz out to go there like just I was like bro just go to his favorite bar and find him there (laughs) like like, like Chaz went and literally found him at the final round uh picked him up and he was a little tipsy and like it was actually awesome because some of the songs like you can kind of hear like like a kind of like drunken swagger like specifically i'm thinking of punching puppies kicking kittens there's kind of like a like you know but it actually kind of fits the vibe of it but yeah it was a, it was a great experience you know that was probably the first time actually like spending a weekend in a studio and working on you know the tracks instead of just playing them live and having somebody record them. Was there something that you took away from that experience that you realized where uh, you learned something new about the recording process that you took away from that experience? You know, I think that was like the first time we had ever like separately tracked in my life, at least, you know, like I was saying, most of the time we had not been playing to like, and I don't think we played to a metronome on that album. I'm not sure, but I don't, I don't know how we would know. I honestly can't remember what, how we did it, but I think the, you know, separate tracking part, realizing how hard, you know, the actual recording process is, you know, cause I'd been playing live, you know, and even if we were in separate rooms, you know, isolating it, you know, to actually play separately, trying to listen to a recording, that was like the first time I'd realized how difficult that can actually be. How many takes, you know, it, it can take to just get something down. Absolutely. So I do want to also talk about uh, touring because you, you, you've you gone on the road before and so forth. So was that pretty early on in the career for the band where you guys want to start going on tour? When do you guys start going on tour? Uh, so with Hourglass... Um, I'm trying to think here. So yeah, we started like, I mean, California was our, our big one, our, like, that was what we were started to hit a lot. And, you know, when I say a tour, we're talking about literally us rolling out in a CRV, <laughs> like and a lot of times, like not bringing the equipment, you know, and like just linking up. Like, I think our first tour, we, uh, you know, I think literally like a week before that or two weeks before that chat, we had met Chaz, like me and Carl that were living together at the time. And, 
and we hear a saxo. I get home for Tuesday practice. That's what we used to do, me and him. And there's a sax player <laughs> playing in our garage. We're like, who the hell is that? <laughs> and like our other roommate, Gilbert's like, oh yeah, I invited him to come jam because our other sax player, Ulia, was a foreign exchange student from Germany. So she was back in Germany for the summer. Oh, wow. And I remember, yeah, we jammed with Chaz and <laughs> we, we were like, all right, cool, bro. We'll call you. And I like called them like four days before a big show at the sale in. And I was like, all right, bro, you want to play with us? And we, we played with them and he did a good job. And I was like, all right, bro, you want to go to California with us this weekend or this next weekend? He was like, yeah. And we took this dude that we barely knew out to California. And I will always remember this. We set it up with this band called Product um, from, they live like three doors down from uh, on Oceanside Boulevard from Oceanside Beach. And bro, we show up. And he had warned us. He's like, hey, bro, I'm just letting you know. Our, like, house kind of, like, half burnt down today. <laughs> wait, like, on wait, our way out there. Yeah. Wait, wait, yeah. half, wait. How is it half burned down? He, like, he was torching, you know, like, he was doing dabs or whatever. This is, like, pre, this is, like, a long time ago before they had, like, all the fancy tools to make it safe and stuff. This is, like, an old school big, you know, thing. And apparently his bed lit on fire. And like torched half his room. So we like literally show up, you know, we're like, we show up at like two o'clock at night. And literally, I'm not joking, like this house, it's it's a like seven Hawaiian squatter dudes living in this little like weird shack with like a back house kind of thing that they use as a studio. And in between, and like it's stuck in between these like four story, like million dollar houses. And there's just this little shack. And we roll up in the front yard and there's literally burnt mattresses, burnt guitars, literally just, and we were like, oh my God, these guys party. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not joking. We like rolled up Ooh. and me and Carl were like, all right, we're sleeping, we're sleeping in the tent out back. And like me and Carl slept in the tent out back where like was literally like the outside shower runoff would like run under our tent. And Carl <laughs> and or Brian and Chaz slept in the inside. And I remember like that weekend, that was so much, that was a crazy weekend. And there was one point where literally Brian, like our bass player, is sleeping on the couch. And on the other side of where the wall is, there's dudes in hazmat suits breaking down the interior side of the wall of his bedroom. And they're like literally walking past them in hazmat suits while Brian's asleep, like on the couch. <laughs> it was so much fun. But that was that was like the start of it. And I think we hit like uh man, we played some fun shows that time. We hit like Gallagher's and OB. I think we hit Winston's or something. Uh, we played this crazy bar called Bar Lucadia. We ended up uh, staying with my bass player's friend who lived in our Lucadia, who he's a lifeguard out there. And that kind of started the whole like California connection. And after that, man, we there was weekends where, you know, there was there'd be months where we were just literally working during the week and then heading out on Thursday night and spending the whole weekends hitting California all the time. Ended Smart. up doing House of Blues out there at one point. Um, you know, and at this time, multiple members had gone in and out. Carl had eventually moved to California. So, like, we kind of, like, followed him out there. But I would <laughs> say California was the first big, consistent run. And by tours, we're talking about we are the kings of weekend warrior tours. That's yep. what we do. We don't do, like, week and a half, two weeks. We just do, like, you know, three to six day runs 
because honestly, right. we can't handle it. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned. I was literally about to say that's that's definitely weekend warrior runs, and so for, you do. <laughs> so, so everyone, so weekend warrior is is kind of like a pseudo industry term that we kind of use, and that basically means what it sounds like is that you go on a tour is usually a short run, about anywhere between you know, two to four days and you just go out and it's usually just, uh, you circle around to a couple of cities outside of your area, then come back. So for example, out in Phoenix, those cities can be like San Diego, Los Angeles, Vegas, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, even Denver. Like those are going to be, you know, maybe San Francisco. That's a little, little far, but even San Francisco, you can do those runs usually and hit a couple of cities in a two to four day time span and then come back. And what's great about doing it that way is that, first of all, it's very efficient in doing so because, you know, it brings down the travel costs, of course, because you're not traveling as much. And then two is that you can go back to those areas a lot more frequently because it's a lot easier to get to them. And that's how you can start establishing a fan base in these cities that are not necessarily in your own hometown. Yep. And that's pretty much what we were doing. And I mean, you know, we went to, I think we did South by two or three times. Um, that's there's yeah. <laughs> and were you, were you booking all these yourself? Um, it was like a mix of me and Carl at that point, you know, Carl had really set up the California relationship. And then, you know, with, with South by it was, uh, it was like a mix of like me, Carl and a little bit Chaz, but, but yeah, South by was, was also, uh, a few ones, but we would like, we would just, get to south by we wouldn't even worry about the connectings because a lot of times like one of the times our bass player literally he couldn't leave arizona let's just put it that way <laughs> legally <laughs> like right before south by south by so we just went out there me carl and Chaz, and we broke down in the in between el paso and austin in the middle of the night got like stranded out there and we had our random friend um because at the time I, I think beef was doing an 80 or not i'm sorry not an 80 20 he was doing like a arizona thing at south by and then our other mm -hmm. friends did their other one at this bar called like lucky strike or i don't even remember but he had us be the headliners of that one and that one was one of those weeks where we like we busked we played shows in between metal bands with a djembe and a sax and an electric guitar. <laughs> we would clear out crowds, dude. It was, it was, we did like six or seven shows in a span of like two days plus busking. And I think we even like played for Kevin Gasman on the side of the street. Like, those were those South buys were always ridiculous. <laughs> they were a blast. And that's the thing for it. You know, if anybody has not been to South by Southwest, it's an amazing experience. And one of the things about South by is there's the official conference part, which is amazing on its own because there's amazing panelists and speakers that are part of it. And there's great ways to connect with other people in the industry and there's vendors there. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very impressive conference. But then the other part of it that is sometimes more known is the unofficial things of South by Southwest, which is like literally you can walk down downtown Austin area and then every corner there's an artist busking or there's you know stages being set up in alleyways or in hotel lobbies. Every single bar it has some sort of performance going on. I mean, you, there's more music than you can possibly imagine that's happening in a in within a week's time frame in downtown Austin. And it's it is an experience. I've never seen that before ever anywhere else for any kind of event. It is totally a completely different animal. 
it's one of a kind. I mean, you, we, I can't even begin to describe walking down sixth street. And I mean, we're talking about literally there's a busking band right here, five feet next to them, another busking band, another, but like, they just like, it's just a wall of people and sounds that you can't even really honestly tell, but yeah, if you have like a 10 foot, you know, by 10 foot square anywhere, wherever it is, there's music going on. One time we showed up, uh, one of the times we went with Jason, we rented a room from some random people like outside of Austin a little bit. And literally we show up and fucking, oh, sorry. Captain's no, playing in the garage. Dude. <laughs> we were like, what? <laughs> Danny, what are you doing? They were literally playing in the garage of this house that we were just randomly rented. I forgot about that one. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, one thing that I've always get asked, especially for artists that are getting started and they're looking to tour, is they always ask the question like, well, how how do we get gigs in outside areas that, you know, that are not in our hometown? Like, how do we get started in getting a part, you know, being involved in these <laughs> shows? So uh, was there something that you did? Was there a specific strategy or tactic um, that you've learned that you used to help get these gigs and, you know, especially in California, but even going out to South by? Um, you know, one of the big things is just, you know, for us, like with product was, you know, they, they came out and I think they played with Mike Pino and, you know, we had always loved Mike Pino for a long time, still do. Um, and I think he was like the opener for, I don't know if it was Mike Pino or Tribal Seeds or whoever it was, but, you know, we made good relationships with them and just, and then anytime we had like our album release party we would book them on that. So it's literally just creating these relationships with out of, out of town bands and not just like, Hey, trade shows like homies. Like we like to party together with you. Like creating that relationship is the way to go. Or, you know, honestly just going out to shows too. You know, it's like one of our, you know, we met one of our favorite people ever, uh, James Cavern at South by, you know, we were chilling behind Wahoo's smoking a joint or something. I met this, Asian British dude and now James Cavern I mean he's been on The Voice he played at Chaz's wedding with me um he's you know now he's in Hobo Johnson and the Lovemakers he's got his own project Jamesy so now he like just you know he sold out Hobo Johnson shows we're just you know in backstage chilling with the with the boys <laughs> like, you know it's it's really just about uh setting up relationships and you know not just using because I feel like a lot of people are just like oh yeah I'm just said doing this relationship so that I can get something out of it it's really about cultivating relationships and keeping in contact you know like my friends SM Familia they're coming into town next week and it's like we met them you know on these California runs and let them crash at our house you know it's like Chaz used to have a house that was like you know the party house back in the day and you know anytime anybody came through we that's what happened with James Cavern actually is Chaz led his whole band, you know, he was coming through back through California and he led his whole band, you know, crashed at his house, you know, for like two or three days. Same with product and, you know, project out of bounds. Like we've hosted a lot of bands through the days. And that's, I think that's honestly the biggest thing that you can do is offer up a place to stay. Oh, I mean, touring bands appreciate that so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're giving them a place that they can crash for the night. Yeah. It's huge. And yeah, I know there's a story I'm trying to remember. Um, where there was a, I think it was Fallout Boy. Um, one of the members of Fallout Boy was like host, like like his mom would let them 
uh, host bands, the touring bands going through. And that's actually one of the reasons why Fall, Fall Out Boy became so fo- famous because they became buddies of all these touring bands that came through yeah. their mom's house. And it's totally true. You you offer up a place to stay or just, just or, you know, even trading shows, but it doesn't even have to be an expectation. You know, it, it was actually been thinking about it and it's you are literally just making friends that in, in the industry of people that are just like you that like the same kind of things like the same kind of music or the same things in pop culture just people that you would normally want to hang out with right but it's also i think to the point where where even with friendships like just general friends right you know it's okay to ask for favors right like it's okay if you have a good friend right and you need to move a couch you can say like hey buddy can you help me move a couch right it's kind of like the same thing right it's like you, you when you build a certain kind of trust and relationship with somebody then you can start asking them certain favors and not necessarily expecting them to say yes but f- at least having the the trust and confidence that you can ask them that as a favor and that hopefully you know and if they're available the chances are they'll probably say yes if they can right it's like because you obviously just in you know personal life you want don't want to necessarily take advantage of people and you want to support other people too it's yep. the same, honestly, the same thing in the industry. It literally is, there's no difference, right? So if you're like having a personal friend that's like, oh yeah, I'm just using them because of such and such reasons. Well, are they truly your friend, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, the whole game with music is literally just relationships. I mean, you see it, it's, you've heard it before is, you know, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. I mean, I can't tell you how many bands I've seen succeed that I didn't consider you know, like, especially in the reggae scene, like all my favorite reggae bands seem to kind of just stay in the same level. And the bands where I was like, eh, it's not really my favorite band at all. Like, you know, they blew up and it's probably just because they knew the right people. You know, they knew the people that were going to get them to the next level. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Like it really is about who you know and which relationships you cultivate. And, you know, it's in a lot of it's luck. I mean, it's just, you know, being in the right place, right time too. Totally. And also I will add to that is, is not, is not just who, you know, and I think that's the thing too, is I think it's both. It's who, you know, and what, you know, because you may know like these amazing people, but if you don't know what you can do for them or what you can ask of them, then it really doesn't make that much of a difference. It's not going to necessarily, you can, you know, you can know, you know, you know, execs over at Live Nation and they're buddies of yours, but if you're not asking the right questions or doing things to help them out, then it really is not going to make any kind of difference. So I think it is a combination of both. It's, it's, it's being knowledgeable about how the industry works and then and then built and like you said, cultivating genuine relationships with with people that are in that industry because, you know, just like anybody else, we like to help friends. Right. So if you become friends and colleagues with these people and they know and trust you and like you, they're far greater to do to help you out when they can than somebody that you're you just talking to for the first time. Yes, I would definitely agree. It's it really is. You got to know what to ask, what's and I wouldn't say what to expect, but yeah, just literally cultivating that friendship without like a selfish mentality, not even like, you know, oh, I'm doing this to get this out of that person, like, you know like you were saying is like, you should generally, you shouldn't go after a relationship. Like, let's say you want a manager and there's like this one awesome manager, but you don't like being around. There's no reason to cultivate that relationship. There's going to be somebody who maybe has less connections who you want to be around that is going to be a better fit in the end. Cause it's just, you know, a lot of these people, you're going to end up developing relationships for the rest of your life. I mean, I've always said that, that like, for me, I think, 
you know, I've, I used to teach workshops and, you know, like have voices or whatever it was. And, you know, it was about, oh, how to start, you know, as a musician. And I think like what really changed my perspective and what I can do with music is thinking about it like a vehicle, you know, like music, let's just say like my CRV, that's music. I don't get in my CRV and I'm gonna be like, I'm the fastest CRV driver in the world. No, it's like, my CRV is the vehicle to get me to do to wherever I want to be. So it's like, I want to do real estate. Music helps cultivate relationships. It helps bring in those people. If I want to do my apparel brand, you know, I have a platform. It's if you treat music as the vehicle to do all the things that you want to do with your life, if you want to make friends, great. Music's an awesome vehicle for that. You know, it's, if you look at it that way, then you won't be disappointed. Then you don't necessarily have to make it big and break and be famous because you know a lot of people have that pressure on it where it's like yeah if we don't if we're not famous i'm quitting music but it's just music is a vehicle if you keep feeding it the gas and taking care of it it can like literally you know get you moving for the rest of your life and get you where you want to be and it's just that's kind of my mentality that really switched you know kind of later in the last you know part of my 20s that really changed everything for me one of the things that I like to say nowadays, and I've, I've said this before on the podcast, and I'm going to repeat myself, is because this is literally why I created the 8020 Show podcast, is whenever you're doing something creative, and in this case, obviously music, but in, in anything really, if it's anything that you are doing that's creative, the number one thing that I always think of is that if whatever I'm doing is creative, but reaches an audience of zero, do I still want to do it? Yes. It's still worth doing. And if the answer to that question is no, then you have to really rethink about what you're doing. But if the answer comes back as yes, then it doesn't make a difference now if you are famous or not, because you're getting something out of it, whether it's, you know, some sort of passion or personal enjoyment, or you're getting other, you know, other skill sets from it or some other, you know, something else that's, that's improving yourself because of it, whatever it is. But if the audience is zero and you still enjoy doing it, then it doesn't make a difference whether you have an audience or not. And obviously, of course, we want to build an audience and that's another challenge in and of itself, but it has to start there. If you don't love what you're doing, then you shouldn't be doing it. Yep. And don't get me wrong, you know, like there's, you know, like obviously we all need to make money. It's like, do I love sometimes playing in the corner of a hotel and then getting told to turn all the way down. So that I'm literally just like playing acoustic to myself, you know, cause a guy has a hearing aid. <laughs> like, <laughs> Do I love that? No, I don't. That's not what I love, but you know, then I kind of like think I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to make uh, enough money to pay for my McDowell mountain, you know, weekend tickets and, you know, and I'm still practicing, you know, like, exactly. I was like, Hey, I'm going to try this song that I did not practice at all that no one's going to hear anyways. And it's just, you know, I've kind of, that's what I've done a lot with the boys now. Cause you know, we're playing a lot of these three hour, two hour gigs of just entertaining or background music and stuff. And I really honestly have been treating it as practice where, Hey, I don't have to pay a hundred dollars for a practice studio today. Hey, I can, you know, we can't necessarily stop and be like, let's rerun that song. But, you know, I can throw stuff at them and if they mess up, it's like, I don't really care. It's like, who cares? <laughs> you know? And Yeah, I definitely don't want to talk about that because you do, as the Hourglass Cats do, a number of residencies and 
you also do quite a bit of covers um, sets through these residencies. So you can talk about more about uh, how that got developed um, in that round, because there are also a lot of artists that love to you know, know more about how to get residencies and things like that. So we didn't really start doing that until, until literally there was like one point where like Carl had moved away and Brian, I think had moved away and it was literally just me and Chaz at this point. And we were like pretty much almost ready to like dissolve the band. Cause it was just <laughs> me. It was an electric guitar and a sax. <laughs> so just, you know, and uh, I think he was just out one night and you know, Oh man, I remember what it was. We played at El Jefe in Scottsdale. His friends, like one of he's friends with one of the dudes that his 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 friend Tommy is the dude that like literally kind of started the Sunday Fun Day vibe out there because he used to do the Sunday Fun Days at El Jefe, and so he ended up booking us on this Tuesday night or whatever. And we literally this is when they would put us on top of the bar. There's like a little cage thing, and <laughs> we we like literally get there. There's like a hundred people, you know, partying, going hard. And the guy, like the sound guy, like switches us over and it's like the loudest feedback you've ever heard. And I'm not joking. People were screaming. They were like, ah, they ran out. <laughs> like we, wow. we cleared this club of like a hundred people before we <laughs> even played. And then, so we played to like the bartenders and like three other people and stuff. And we we're like, all right, that was a, that was a bus. But he ended up going out that night with him and he ran into uh one of the, you know, people like the, you know, one of the, there's like three big owners out there, like, you know, the EEG and Riot House and then uh, the other one. And I'm sure they've all kind of switched around and done stuff, but yeah, ran into one of those guys and, you know, Tommy's like, Oh, you should meet jazz. He's played at El Jefe. And he's like, Oh, we played at El Jefe. So that kind of started the whole, like, yeah, you know, playing for, you know, these club type situations and, Believe me, we've, these are terrible. They're not like, you know, there was times where we may have ruined entire AV systems, like, you know, like <laughs> floating out speakers because we're just kind of winging it, you know, and trying to learn on YouTube how to run a mixing board into a giant, you know, $100,000 AV house system in a club, you know? So took a lot of, uh, you know, of uh, <laughs> embarrassing moments and, you know, scaring people, screaming people, feedback, but literally just that one, you know, just from that one gig, it blossomed into what it is now, you know, and then somebody saw us at this place and they're like, Oh, Hey. And now it's just like, you know, we've been doing it so long now that it's just, you know, I'm pretty lucky where I don't really necessarily have to go looking for stuff now. Cause I've cultivated these relationships for so many years now where it's like, we get to choose, you know, some of the good stuff and, and, you know, the other part is, is, you know, having the content, you know, it's like, I'm not going to Old Town Scottsdale and playing, you know, like stuff that people don't want to hear. They don't want to hear old rock classics. And sometimes they do, but, you know, I'm trying to stay hip and like, you know, I'm like, all right, these we're going against DJs now, you know, it's like a DJ is playing and then they cut out for our band to play. So it's like, all right, that means I need to be playing like, you know, the Drake and, you know, the, the top hits and keep it upbeat. So it's, it's literally just about like knowing your market and continuously, you know, being fresh and keeping it hip, you know? So, so I think it's a, it's not for everybody, you know, there's a lot of 
moments where like last night I was at Sandbar and I'm not joking. There's like 500 people there and I have to go like set up and set up a giant speaker in front of like these old people's faces, you know, and like blast through this, you know, sound system where the kid that's a manager barely knows what he's doing with it. And it's like, and I'm like, turn it down. So it's, it's, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, but it can definitely, uh, it can, it can fund your, your living, you know? And it's like, my thing is if I can at least get one or two people interested in the band, you know, and I always have stickers, I always have CDs, always have some form of promotional material because we're getting exposed to audiences on a consistent basis that would never go to a Rebel Lounge show, that would never look up the Hourglass Cats, Phoenix, somebody that's never gonna type in Phoenix. And these hotels, they have so many travelers and we meet so many people from so many different parts of the country and sometimes the world. And, you know, though we develop those relationships, you know, like I got to call a guy from Omaha today to be like, hey, are you for real about us coming out in June? <laughs> like, you know, and that's just from like Casimir or the W or Hyatt or Sandbar, or, you know, these places that we play. That's incredible. And it's what you mentioned before. I want to reiterate the fact that you mentioned that this is good practice. So not even just for yourself as a musician, if you're doing, let's say, a solo gig and just playing um, covers, but also as a band as a whole, playing these cover songs you're essentially getting paid to continue to practice music. And yeah. even if it's just covers, it's you're still practicing as a band and mm-hmm. getting essentially paid for it. Yeah. I mean, I did my 1099s this year. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we, me and you have talked about this. I've, I have played with, I can't tell you, maybe 150 different musicians through my career. Like, you know, I, I'm the kind of guy where I literally don't even, I will hire somebody I've never heard play. <laughs> hey man you know i play drums cool you know and and a lot of it's through necessity i mean there's been times where we've had to hire the girlfriend you know be like hey drummer's not showing up henry can you move to the drums set up your percussion all right henry's girlfriend at the time you know like bing (laughs) like (laughs) it's like all right cool here's 100 bucks for you and i mean you know because a lot of them are like yeah we're hiring you for a four piece so if i show up they don't care about who the fourth piece is you know, right exactly the person up there as long as there's a body so yeah and that's another way to connect too and right is that now you're con- you're you you're you're actually getting musicians gigs so not only are you getting accustomed to to working with them as you know potential members for the band but also mm-hmm. they have their own separate projects too so now you're becoming friends with them because you worked with them on a sh- on a show all the time i mean that's that's what's happened and we do the same you know it's like with black bottom lighters i mean i can't tell you how much ebb and flow between us and them there's been i mean you know those are those are our brother boy like that you know they took us on those colorado tours and we've done a lot of stuff with them you know i've done a lot of stuff with them Chaz has played with them a million times it's it's you know we've developed these relationships with everyone because i mean even in our band it's like look at the hourglass cats it's like in the hourglass cats you have like henry and his millions of projects you had enrique and future loves past he's been playing with Fayuka. Josh Montag and Jesse and Scatter Melodies, Jesse and Kill a Mouse. Christian has played with Haley, Kill a Mouse, Joey. I mean, it's just, we all, like, I would say, like, if you had 50 Phoenix musicians, you probably have 150 bands. Yep, it's true. Everyone just switches around. And that's, you know, the key is that, like, we got to keep building that community and keep stirring the pot. I 100% agree. 
So, uh, Corey, talk a little bit more about your what's currently happening with Hourglass Cats before I let you go. Yeah. Um, so we got our album release show, Rebel uh, 326. Also, my 33rd birthday. Trying oh, to... well, happy pre-birthday. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, I was, I was sometimes like, you know, if I can get that extra 50 people out there, by guilt chipping them on a birthday thing, then I'll do yep. it. It does work. Uh, yeah, so we got the album coming out. Um, we're going to do another single uh, the week before. We just did a single last Tuesday with uh, the homie Megaran, who's killing it. Um, so, yeah, we're probably going to have uh, three singles out before we release the album. I think we're going to do album, like, probably, like, first week or so of, of uh, April. But yeah, I mean, it's a nine-song album. We ended up scrapping, like, a few of them just because, I don't know, we were like, eh, you know. <laughs> especially yoga but we were like ask the girls i was like is this is this work anymore and they were like nah, it's no not the, <laughs> <laughs> not the time i was like all right cool scrap that but yeah so we got that coming out we're doing another video next week with uh josh and jesse they're gonna film a little me and chaz uh like scientific project thing. it's yeah we'll, we'll see we'll see you know they got they got their whole thing going and then, I mean, yeah, we're, you know, for me, I've already, we've already got like, you know, I've got one song I'm sitting on that, like, I'm so excited about this next, you know, for us, it's once you have something, you're like already over it and you're like, all right, this mm -hmm. is the next one. Yeah. So we got some stuff in the works, you know, we've already started writing, you know, we're going to pump out two or three new songs at the album release show that are pretty much like we busted out the last few practices. So yeah, it's, it's been nice, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm letting Christian write now a little bit more kind of starting with like the baseline. So it's kind of changing the vibe a little bit for us, you know, where it's very more like rhythm focused instead of me like writing a song and being like, all right, this is how you play this song. And then that kind of way where it's more open source now. So I'm definitely excited for the future stuff. Absolutely. Can't wait to hear it. Well, thank you so much, Corey, again, for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And good luck with the show coming up and good luck with all the releases. Awesome, brother. Good talking to you. You too, man. Take care. Later. Thank you so much for listening to the 8020 show. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow. If you enjoyed the episode or this podcast overall, please leave us a review or comment on our socials, which you can find us at 8020records on pretty much all platforms. You can also check us out on our website at www.8020records.com. And as always, be happy, be healthy, and be productive.